Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good evening and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk, Practical Approaches for an MCI Response. In most careers, there are usually a small number of individuals who act as major influencers and significant educators. I am honoured tonight to say that our guest is one of these people in my career. Many of our concepts, concepts and products have been influenced by his written and respected opinion. With this in mind, let me introduce our guest tonight, my colleague and friend, AJ Heitman. AJ's career in the service and education of pre-hospital care is second to none. And today we're going to talk specifically about his thoughts on multiple casualties. So good evening, AJ. It's, uh, it's good to see you. How are you today? I'm doing very well. So nice to see you. Fantastic. You and seem talk to you. Thank you very much. You seem to be in a far sunnier place than I am at the moment. I'm, I'm in Halifax with lots of clouds in the north of England. Where, where, where are you today, AJ? I'm in beautiful San Diego, California, where it hardly ever rains, but it's raining today. So for us, it's a holiday to see it rain a little bit. <laughs> and uh, there's lots of exciting things going on out here. So it's a, it's a fun place to live and work right now. Fantastic and, and uh, excellent to see you and, and good to see you there. Well, good to see you've got a bit of rain because uh, Settler the News tells us that you probably need some in California, but nice to see a bit of sunshine as well. AJ, mm -hmm. just before we start the subject, AJ, tonight, um, could you just tell our, our listeners just a little bit about your own background and your own experience and then maybe just a little bit more specifically about what you've done in the multiple casualty area of life? Yeah, I can blend both of them together. I started out uh, my career at the age of 10, believe it or not, in Pennsylvania. My father was in charge of a fire department system. So I really began to look at um, the way they systematized uh, firefighting and EMS. And he was a great teacher. I went on to college and came out and was lucky enough to land an early planning position in uh, the Allentown, Pennsylvania region for a system that was being developed under the federal government and uh, learned, kind of cut my teeth there and had the opportunity to quickly promote to the director of the system and um, realized that mass casualty incidents were really not taught how to handle it. In fact, the first AAOS textbook only had about four paragraphs on triage, which was crazy and never mentioned staging or all the other things that are important. So we put together a disaster response system in uh, 1977, and that was a region-wide system with standardized triage tags, et cetera, and uh, uh, made an influence there and then put together a uh, MedCom communication system, which was region-wide across a six uh, county or province or whatever you want to call it um, from, uh, 
from throughout my region. And uh, that particular uh, opportunity uh, was really good because we could then link in 18 hospitals at the same time to a single portable radio through a microwave system. So we spent about $2 million to do that. And then I decided after uh, 17 years of that that I wanted to go into operations. So I became operations director for uh, a large system called Citronia. And uh, we did a lot of things there under mass casualty and rehab and got 13 different fire departments that we supported to all agree on the same disaster response and, uh, and rehab. So that when a Citronia paramedic told a firefighter, you need to go to rehab, he had the uh, he had the orders from his fire chief via our written protocols that he had to do that, and that was pretty important because we were seeing people get horribly exhausted uh, at, at MCIs. Um, in the course of my career in Eastern, though, I I was also a, uh, a command officer with Bethlehem Township Fire Department, and uh, that would be my home community, and uh, I was always called black cloud as a kid because whenever I'd walk in the fire station, they'd get a two alarm fire. And so I had the opportunity to be involved in lots of MCIs, um, some from the administrative standpoint and others from the operations. Uh, one of which the most memorable was a hotel fire in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where we lost uh, nine people and, and transported about a hundred. But um, really the, was able to show uh, the systematic approach to MCIs and and of course, I've been teaching MCI management for a long time. When I was at Lehigh University for my master's program, they asked me to look at something that was the most disorganized in my occupation, and that was MCI management. So uh, part of my master's work was to uh, look at the systemization of systems like UPS and Disney and, and do the same thing for MCI management. And then uh, a person who was my mentor was James O. Page, and Jim Page was the founder of GEMS, the technical advisor on the show Emergency. He was a fire chief. He was a stadium S director and attorney. And uh, I was blessed to have him as a mentor. And one day he said to my wife and I, uh, how would you like to have AJ come to California? And of course, we knew him for a long time, and he was my mentor. And I thought, oh my gosh, to have the opportunity to, to work for your mentor is is unbelievable and i did that and i ran the conference division i ran the consulting division i did a lot of different things and then they took me to lunch one day and said we want you to become the editor of gems to which i said i'm really not a trained journalist and they said oh no no you you write grants you've never had a grant that wasn't funded you do this you do writing we'll surround you with good editors but we want ems knowledge and so that was my beginning of my 26-year jaunt as the uh, editor and editor-in-chief of GEMS. And then two years ago, I went editor emeritus so I could do other outside things. And then recently, uh, all my direct ties to GEMS uh, ended. So I'm now going to be doing work for several different people, including consulting work internationally and here. And uh, I'm just kind of blessed to be able to do the th things that I love. You know, I, I can honestly say I've, I've never worked a day in my life because it's never felt like work. But uh, and, you know, you and I became friends many years ago and uh, uh, bantered back and forth about your triage system. And I, I certainly adopt your triage tag. I, you know, I've made modifications with my little Mongo stub and we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, still, it's my preferred method of uh, triage. And people throw things at me like electronic triage, you know, we're going to do it with tablets and 
I can run circles around them. You give me some smart triage tags and some people that know how to use them, and uh, and I can run circles around them. I usually start off my classes by handing out some of the smart tags and uh, telling people that that's like a police officer going to work. These are the bullets that are in your gun, and you better have them on your hip when you get out at a bad incident. So we'll, we'll talk about that. That's really what you want to talk about. Yeah, no, that, that's bad. And it, it truly is uh, an amazing career that you've had. And, and it's really interesting when you were talking about um, when you first got into multiple casualties and, and uh, mass casualty incidents, that, that you, you noticed that structure was was very limited at the beginning, both in a teaching and an application. And it was quite interesting when I first started looking to develop a, a triage system what one of the areas i found was was complete lack of structure as well there was some concepts that we will respond and give care but there was nothing really specific and it was quite interesting one of the first books i i went i, I was looking for a lot of literature to try and get a grip on the subject and uh, one of the first books i certainly found that actually started to make some dent into what I was trying to do. Well, I, I don't know if you remember it, AJ, was it, was it practical applications in multiple casualties? I think you did a, it, it was a, about a 30 page sort of pamphlet type book. And uh, that was certainly one of the texts that I used to uh, just sort of validate some of the, the more practical issues I was trying to deal with at the time. But what, what, what a wonderful career and, and you must be very proud of it. Well, you know, it's interesting and I'll give you an example. Um, in, at an MCI, you have to pick up roles and I'd I'd train people and they'd always want to be the triage officer, the transportation. And I'd say, no, 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 today you have to be something different because you never know if they're going to point at you and say, run staging or run this or run that. And and I really got that when I was a young kid watching the fire department. I'd go in and the same four guys or three guys that were on an engine company last week were now on the truck company. And maybe one of them was given over to my father to be his partner for the day. And I'd say, why so much change? Why aren't they staying on the engine? And, you know, it was very obvious. You had to understand pump operations and advancing hose lines and taking hydrants. But tomorrow you're in the ladder truck and now you're doing search and rescue and you're doing roof ventilation. And, and then the next day you're on the ambulance. So, you know, it, it really kind of is the same thing. You got to be a jack of all trades when you're involved in MCI management. And I think uh, that's that's what I've learned. And I've learned from people all over the country, London Ambulance and others who have specialty units. And uh, I've tried to help people understand that you don't have to be in a big city to run an MCI really well. Uh, we just had a major Amtrak train mm -hmm. crash in probably one of the most remote areas two days ago in uh, in, in our country. And my goodness, they, they got all of the patients out within an hour, which is exceptional mm -hmm. in a rural area. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had to bring in uh, ambulances from six different counties because it's so barren and remote, but they had a plan in place and the dispatch center basically ran the MCI. Yeah, I was, I was, I was reading about that incident the other day. It was in Montana, I think it was in off, off the top yes. of my head. Yeah, we, we yeah. had a similar incident probably 10 years past in the UK. A train came off the rails in, in Cumbria, which again, an incredibly remote location in the UK. And uh, as you say, you don't have to be in a big metropolitan city for these things to happen. Uh, you know, significant casualties can happen in completely remote locations, especially when we're, we're dealing with transportation. Just just looking at the, the, the multiple casualty side of life um, in a little bit more detail, is there anything you've found um, that is a, a sort of recurring issue in multiple casualties in your experience that you see 
happen again and again and again, some maybe good or bad. Is there anything you, you come across that you, you find is quite recurring? Well, it's always communications first. If anything fails, it's communications or too, too much communications or verbal diarrhea. So communications is always an area that has to be carefully managed and keep everybody off the radio that doesn't belong on the radio. We're all used to getting on the radio and letting everybody know where we're at. I don't need to know that when I'm calling in 20 ambulances. When you arrive on scene, staging will know you're there. You don't have to be telling me over the radio that you're three blocks away. I don't, I don't need to hear that. And, and, you know, the other thing is that people, people get into this uh, habit of, you know, I go on a call, I take one patient, I follow through, I do my report, I do my assessment, that's my patient. And at an MCI, you work for me. Uh, you, you don't really have a patient, you have a job. And you have to many times forget that you're a paramedic and you're a scene manager. And so probably one of the biggest uh, nuts to crack with people is that you, you have to get into a routine where almost any call could be, you know, and an MCI is anything beyond your normal uh, resources. And we could show up at a two-person incident with two critical injured children and that requires you to bring two extra ambulances in because you're going to be all hands on deck for that. So it's not an MCI, but it's a multiple patient uh, scenario. And, he, and I used to say, pardon my French, anytime you get to the scene and you say, oh, shit in your brain. Oh, my God. That's that's probably an MCI incident. That's that requires incident command. And, and we don't think about incident command. We'll sign off as ambulance 72 on scene or we touch the CAD system. But I want a little bit more than that when I pull up to a big incident. I want somebody to say, Ambulance 72, I'm on scene, I'm establishing command, and I'm under the traffic signal light at 15th and Maple. And so I've given a location, I've given a little scene report, I have a bus that's on all four wheels, obviously rolled a few times, you know, give me such and such a level response. When I, when I became an operations director, I walked in and Said, how many triage tags do we have per ambulance? And they said, well, the state requires us to have 50 per ambulance. And I said, that's not enough. You know, I want about 150 per ambulance and I want them, you know, in, in packages of 25 and labeled. And, and they said, oh my God, we hired, uh, you know, some kind of wacko here. You expect me to triage 150 people? I said, no but I expect that you don't have to call for three ambulances to get 150 triage tags. And, you know, and in addition, we had 25 in every kit because when you walk upstairs to an unconscious person and you find that there's five kids that are unconscious because of a, a leak in the, in the heating system, you're not going to run outside and get your triage tags. But if you have a kit with you that has triage tags, then Every time you, you, you need the gun, the triage gun, it's right there. You just pull it and you start your triage. Because otherwise, you're just not going to do it. If you don't take action in the first five minutes, you're lost. Yeah, and you know what? I think, I think you've hit a really important point is that the sooner you can effectively start this management, I think the absolutely better out, you're, you, the better the outcome is going on. Nearly everybody I've talked to on this subject um, who's commanded, not, not just the large scenes, but you're right, scenes with fairly small numbers of people, but possibly in a more remote location, they all say if we can get the first five to ten minutes correct everything else starts to just flow so much better and it's trying to get the the people first on scene incredibly competent at doing some simple things correctly isn't it but doing it time effectively as well 
Um, and I think time is such an important thing we have to manage because time can slip by so quickly, can't it? And we know how critical time is when we're dealing with serious injured people and, and trying to get them definitive care. So I, th I think that's so important. That and, and, and lately I've been teaching a concept of uh, when you give a report, if you get there and you see that it's been a plane crash or you've got a building explosion, just like the fire service calls in a second alarm or a third alarm or a fourth alarm right away, um, you call in an all-hands MCI, that tells everybody who's coming that all hands on deck and we're all going to be going to work. And this is a big one. And the dispatch center knows. The other one is an evolving MCI. You know, comm center, I'm on the scene here of this uh, report of unconscious, but I'm seeing two unconscious people. This is an evolving MCI. Give me a level two response, which brings, you know, maybe 15, 20 units to the scene. And uh, that's really important. And the other thing is to if you think you have 10 patients, you probably have 20. That's a lesson that I've learned a long time ago. Okay, and if that's... people are spewing out the front at an active shooter incident, then by God, there's going to be as twice as many that are coming out the back. Because when somebody starts shooting inside of a public building, people run like rats for the first door that they can find. So I'm probably going to have to set up four triage points, just like the fire department does four sides to uh, checking out a fire. Uh, it's been my experience. You go to these beautiful hotels in London or anywhere that you're going, and uh, the fire escapes never exit out the front of the building unless you're in New York and the Bronx. But for the most part, they come out in the back or on top of a parking deck or somewhere. So, you know, if, if you get that bad feeling, you better request resources. We never, ever request enough resources. For some reason, we're afraid to bring in 10 ambulances in case we don't need them. Well, God, don't call me and tell me that I slept overnight when I was three blocks away from 15 children overcome by smoke inhalation. You know, call me. And if you don't need me, I'll go back to bed. Not a problem. It makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting. The first comment you said is that communications is the problem. Um, and I don't think that's uh, a one, you know, I don't think that's just something that happens in America. You talk to anybody with experience in this subject, it seems to communications is, is, is the root of all evil. Um, so it's an area that quite fascinates me. How, how do we improve that when we, when we get to, to a multiple casualty scenario? Because consistently, and I, I could probably, not that I'm a betting man, but I would probably put money on the next big incident in the UK, communications will be cited as another problem, even though we've improved. It seems to be something that's continuously ca causing issues. So it's interesting you say that from an, you know, from being based in America, we see the same problem across, across in the UK at the moment as well. I think. I think if you really take people, I get them in classes and they're, they're nervous. They're afraid I'm going to ask them to do something that they've never done before. And maybe I am. But by the time you're done, I want you to understand the role of triage and staging and everything else. And, and I always bring it back to, let's say I'm, there's an important uh, uh, soccer final and, and I invite you to my house to watch the soccer final. Well, I tell you where you can park or where you can't park because you're not gonna park in my neighbor's driveway. He's gonna get mad and you can't park in the fire zone. So I have a staging officer, somebody who makes sure that everybody parks and brings their goodies inside. And then when they bring their goodies inside, if they have shrimp cocktail, I want that on my dining room table. And I've probably put down some plastic sheeting so that the tartar sauce or whatever doesn't get on the floor. And if you're bringing dripping wet beer or beverages, then that goes out back. That's where rehab is. 
And uh, for those that really, really love the soccer match, you go into this room because that's where the big screen TV is. And for some of the people who hate soccer, they go in the kitchen and they cackle in the kitchen. And I'll give you a job over there. And if somebody gets drunk, uh, it's my house, it's my party, you go home. I'll take your keys away from you and I'm in charge. And then at least in the United States, when you come to somebody's house in the middle of bad weather, you have a jacket, you don't just throw it down. You put it in an area like an equipment stockpile. And, and in my house, it's in the front bedroom. All coats go in the front bedroom. And if they're not labeled and one's my size, thank you for your contribution, AJ. So at an MCI, it's the same thing. I'll tell you where to park. I'll tell you what your job is. I'll tell you, you know, where to put your equipment in the equipment stockpile area. I'll tell you where rehab is. I tell the comm center, we orchestrate it like it's a, a big orchestra going on. And it is my party. And, and I don't care who you operate from on a daily basis. If I invite you to my party, you do what I want you to do. And I've literally sent people away from a scene, uh, again, you know, at a big incident where I asked them to set up rehab. And they said, we're not going to do rehab. And I said, what? And they said, no, you know, you're giving your crews and other people all the cardiac arrests and we're not going to do a scut job like rehab. And I said, oh, really? So I assigned another crew to set up rehab in front of a music store on the avenue. And uh, I told the comp center they could send all resources from XYZ, the cocky people that just talked to me, send them back to quarters. And they came over and said, what the F? And I said, you're at my party. I asked you to do rehab. You don't want to do it. You're out of here. Because I had plenty of ambulances. I had 30 ambulances there. I don't need somebody who's not going to play the game. And uh, the reality is, you know, people listen to the radio. They listen to scanners. They listen to calls. And, and when they hear you saying, give me a level one response, and I have 15 cr critical children, I, you know, I want this escalated, or I want two helicopters. Pretty soon, everybody wants to practice the same kind of thing. Uh, it, it's not, a, a, and you know, in the early days, calling of, of ALS and triage, they, they, were, they were early adopters. And there were some that are slow to come along. And, you know, I go places and they'll say, well, we're not using those triage tags. We use this. I said, well, guess what? For this class, you're going to use my triage tags. And, and, you know, it doesn't you have to be a rocket scientist to know that red is red, no matter what the triage tag is. And green is green and dead is dead. And so, you know, whether you're using a lipstick tube to put a number one, two, three, four on the forehead, or whether you're using the smart system and folding it, you know, uh, it really doesn't matter to me because uh, I don't care if there's ribbon or tape or whatever people are using, as long as we systematize it and get those people to the red tarp, the yellow tarp, the green tarp. And, and that's something I, I want to not forget to mention. I can give you dozens of examples of the magic that happens, and it really is magic when you lay a big tarp, a big ass red tarp on the street, and then you separate it by eight feet with a yellow tarp and then eight feet by a green tarp, and you line up some cones to put that into a cattle herd. Magic happens because people will not walk on that tarp unless they have a reason to walk on that tarp. They will walk around it, <clears throat> excuse me, because the color code being such a large area is so significant to show organization and management. And if I see Colin come to the scene, and I know he's an exceptional provider or whatever, an advanced provider, 
I want you to go over and manage the red tarp, the yellow tarp, the green tarp, whoever I assign you to. And then that tarp because, becomes your domain. We failed to put somebody in charge of the tarp or the, that particular patient collection area, whatever you want to call it. And, and that's really important because those are the people that need to yell for resources. Those are the people that need to do what I call sub-triage. All the reds are being thrown into the red tarp, but somebody has to be going around those reds to decide which of the reds go first and which reds don't belong there and you refold to yellow and you get them the hell off your tarp. You are the master of that tarp and you're in charge. And then people just keep coming, 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 and you never leave that tarp if you're the master of that tarp. And so if you're in charge of the red, and I even have vests that say priority treatment area commander, and, and that shows that you have a significant role there. And then you become what I call a patient advocate. When, when you're running a particular section, even if it's a priority three tarp, my job is to get rid of my people. And if I look over and, and somebody's screwing around or they're doing a trach or whatever that happens to be, and they don't, they're not loading an ambulance, well, take three of my greens, will you? Get them out of here. Or get me a van so that I could put eight of them in and send them away from the scene. It's ridiculous to use an ambulance for a priority three patient if you don't have to. And so, you know, I like to make it fun. I like to make it a game. And, and usually when I do outside exercises, by the end of day two, People feel so comfortable. They, they, they want an MCI. They want it to happen because they want to try their new skills. And, you know, I've had hundreds of people that I've trained contact me and say, oh, my God, thanks for telling us that we needed separate radio channels. You know, we do stupid things and try and run everything at an MCI on one radio channel. Can't be done. And, but when I do classes, I make them use the same radio channel to show them how stupid that is. You can't request resources and also be talking to your, your triage officer over the same radio channel. Just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I really like the, the way you described um, when people come to your house uh, to, to watch a, a soccer game, how there is already, it's a good analogy for seeing what is command and control. The, the other thing I, I think I picked up from what you said was, um, and I so agree with this, that we, we talk about communications being a problem a lot, um, but I think the more we can promote what I would call non-verbal communications where the tarp says red, and if you're red, you go there. Now, I don't have to tell somebody that because that's that's a physical action. If somebody can just see non-verbally, I have a red patient, therefore I take a red patient. That is good communications, but nobody has to talk to say it. So the more we can lay that structure down and we've got the color code in the right place, and we've got LA infrastructure, I, I think that really enhances everything. Uh, so I think I, I, re I really like the, the, the way you explained that. But just, just you touched on that a little bit there about teaching. Um, I, I remember many years ago, again, when I was first, I, th I think we'd almost designed our first system um, when I first met you at the GEMS conference many years ago, and I was lucky enough to sit in the two-day course that, that you were teaching. Um, and, you know, your, your accolades are many on, on, on how, that you, how you teach. But if, if you were to say to somebody fairly new to the trade who was going to take um, and teach multiple casualty response, is there maybe two or three things you would say, these are the things you should concentrate on to, to try and enhance how they get the message over? Yeah, and I think uh, the, the first thing is checklists. Uh, people forget that checklists are extremely important. Uh, if you're going to teach, do a checklist of everything that you plan on teaching and systematically how it should be done. I have checklists that I can send to anybody 
and you could really follow it and teach a class just by going through the checklist and it it prioritizes things you know get yourself an assistant make sure you wear a vest make sure you get a staging officer uh do we need helicopters or call resources in early uh there's a great book called the checklist manifesto and it's a it's a cheap book and you get that off amazon and it's written by a doctor who talks about how he systematized checklists when he realized that mistakes were being made in the medical community. It's a fabulous book. And then the other thing I tell everybody is to watch the, the TV show MASH because MASH is a perfect example of somebody who has an assistant, for example, Radar uh, was beloved on MASH because he always said things to the Colonel like, I think you should call more helicopters or uh, you broke your wife's favorite picture frame when you were on R and R, but you wrote her a lovely note and she sent you another one. Oh my God! The colonel says I didn't realize how busy I was. I'm tired. I'm going to go take a nap. So everybody needs a radar. And I was at a scene, and uh, it was a hotel. Uh, it was a hotel fire, and uh, I was overburdening myself. I took on the role of the transportation officer. And I was trying to run the radio, the clipboard and, and assign people to hospitals. And from the side outside the scene tape was a dispatcher who said, hey, could you use a hand? And I said, yeah, get over here. And I handed him the radio and uh, I handed him the clipboard and I just became a commander of transportation and uh, then got a bunch of runners, which is another important thing using runners. Not everybody has to be on a radio. You say to somebody, go to the back of the building and tell them to organize that a little bit better or go get me five backboards, whatever it happens to be. And and so I'm working this hotel fire and, and every time that they'd be calling me, which is another thing, I don't hear it. Um, he would hit me in the side and hand me the remote microphone and I'd answer transport. Go ahead. And if you listen to the radio tapes, I sounded pretty good, but I only sounded pretty good because my radar was right there with me. And I always tell people I knew I was effective and he was effective because the next morning I could hardly get out of bed. My side felt like I'd been punched by Muhammad Ali and I was black and blue from him nudging me that whole afternoon. And that's how I knew that, you know, and, and, and God, everybody needs an assistant. I don't think if it's AJ or Colin Smart or anybody, who's ever done this for a long period of time, none of us would say we could do it all. We always need an assistant. So, you know, if, if you are running a scene and somebody says triage, do triage, well, then you have to think, am I gonna do triage? Do I have enough tags and, and the time to triage everybody or do I need a team? And if, if now I need a team, then I get three people, I hand them each 25 tags, I send them in different directions and tell them to return the unused tags to me. And then I know I've assigned out 75 tags. I do a quick count and I just have five returned to me. I know I triage 70 people and, and I can do that anywhere in a movie theater or whatever it happens to be. As soon as you look at the scene and realize I can't do triage myself, but I, I can be the triage coordinator that you subdivide those jobs. And, uh, and, and the other important lesson that any instructor has to know is that probably the first five units that arrive on the scene of a big incident, like a major explosion or something, those five units are going to be stripped of all their people and a lot of their supplies, and they're probably not going to be used for transport. 
So you get to a big scene, you realize that you think you're going to, you think you've got 10 patients, you need at least 10 more ambulances. You can't count on the five that just arrived there because they're going to be empty shelves. And uh, that's just the way it is. You have to always, you know, if I'm working a level two incident, which would be 10 to 25 people, I might request a level three if it's bad weather. And then I'm going to get enough resources for more than 25 units. So everybody, you know, when I was a regional director, everybody knew I'm, I'm on the scene of a level one incident, which was less than 10 surviving patients, but I'll be able to handle it with the three units that are responding. Okay. But if I said I'm at a level one incident and I want a level one response, then the comm center had a list, bang, 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 to send me 12 ambulances. Well, why 12 ambulances? Well, because maybe the second and third unit, I'm going to strip them of their personnel. Or I could get to a scene which is a level one, which is less than nine surviving patients, but it's down off the roadway. Like in, in, in my home territory back in Pennsylvania, they had an incident where a bus went off a major highway in through the trees with 50 people on board. Well, that's a very complicated MCI because now you're going to have to do rescue out the side windows of a bus. And, and not everybody's going to be spewing out of there and, and laying all over the sidewalk. I mean, they're down in the woods. So, um, you know, when people realize, okay, don't panic, just set up the tarps. Let's get these people out. Let's have somebody stand at the top of the hill and we'll triage them as they come up the hill. Um, every, every, there are no two MCIs that are the same. And I think you know that from your experience. Um, but the concepts are always the same and communications is always going to be a problem and making ambulances line up in the right area is always going to be a problem unless somebody says comm center alert all units staging is at fifth and walnut repeat fifth and walnut I want all units to come to fifth and walnut and some genius will still call and say but I'm coming down maple street well great but I want you to come down to Fifth and Walnut. I don't care how the hell you get there. Oh, well, we're, we're close to the back of the hotel. You want us to go there? No, you were told to go to Fifth and Walnut. And then the comm center just pushes a button. Well, actually, first, they take a deep breath and say, here, you idiot. And they push the button and they say, nope, all units, Fifth and Walnut. And all drivers are to stay with their units. Repeating, all drivers are to stay with their units. Important concepts. Hmm. I mean, and, and, and the examples are, I mean, just from my career, Columbine High School, which was the pivotal event for active shooters in the United States. They had a young child that was shot in the upstairs library. The pictures are still ar around about this. And he vaulted out the window after he was horribly shot onto the roof of an armored car that the police had brought in and they dragged him in and they reported they were going to come to the front of the building with a horribly shot child. And actually the transportation officer, it was his nephew and he didn't even know it at the time, but he turned to a unit from a private service and said, bring your ambulance up here. You're going to get a badly injured child. And the paramedic said, I, I can't because my driver's gone. I don't know where he is. So his unit was a dead unit as far as he was concerned. So they turned to a Denver ambulance crew and said, you guys pull up here, take this patient off to the hospital. And when I sat with that guy, that paramedic cried when he said to me, it was the biggest televised event of my career. And I would have had Danny Rohrbach 
and, and I would have been able to be on the Today Show and all these other shows, but Denver got to do it because I couldn't find my driver. And I said, so, you know, okay, don't, don't get crying on me. Just how would you improve that the next time? And I'll never forget it. He said, the next time I'll handcuff the son of a bitch to the steering wheel. <laughs> so, you know, the, yeah. and, the, and the real root of the problem was that they were in a fire system but they weren't allowed to train with the fire system because they were outside providers. So they didn't know about staging. They didn't know that the driver should stay with every unit. And, and those are the little pearls that I've always tried to build into my articles from gems is, you know, what did you learn from this whole thing? I'm, I'm writing an article on the, it's the 30th anniversary of the Kansas City, Missouri Hyatt collapse, which was a walkway inside the Hyatt at a party that collapsed and where they had to do field amputations. And they did a tremendous job. A famous luminary called Jack Stout was running that system at the time. And, and Jack just did a great job of, of writing that article for GEMS. And I'm rewriting it to talk about how many things we learned 30 years ago from that one incident. And, and I think that's, you know, for anybody who's an instructor, we're back to the instructor read the articles on Columbine or read the articles that, about the Hyatt collapse and, and oh my God, you'll just learn things that, that should be systematized. There's, there's a wonderful quote um, that we had a hugely experienced doctor who's now retired, Judith Fisher, um, who'd been to many, many of the, especially the, the IRA bombings in the 1980s on the mainland. And uh, she, she used to do a wonderful lecture on, um, on major incident response. And it was a quote from uh, Otto, von, Otto von Bismarck, I think, is that uh, um, I, I don't learn from experience, I learn from other people's experience, which I think is a wonderful quote because there's very few incidents in the past. There's very few new things going to happen, isn't there? Every now and again, you'll get the, the extraordinary incident, but most things have already happened and have already got some documentation about what worked well and what didn't. So and I think learning from that evidence is so, so important because uh, it's it's all there, isn't it? We, we just have to pick up the books and the papers and read it. Um, so I think that's a hugely important part is read read the, the post-incident reports, read the literature and and find out what has happened before and what we've learned because we don't have to relearn that, do we? Um, I think that that's I mean that's something I've always tried to do uh, is is try and learn from ex other people's experience and not have to have bad experiences myself. So I think that's always a quote that stayed in my mind, and I think I think it's a very useful one. Yeah, uh, and Jim Page always used to say people want to be led. They don't come and ask you, but they sit dormant. Engine four's crew will stand on the curb for an hour unless somebody puts them to work. And he and I, after the, uh, after the uh, mirror building explosion uh, in, in Oklahoma, we, uh, we, we learned there that the, you know, the first explosion blew a lot of things out onto the street and they started to do triage too close. And then there was a report of a second bomb. It was an unfounded report, but people, began to flee and they, they moved the triage area. And when they moved the triage area from this tiny little cluttered area, they found a parking lot that was open and they, they now own that parking lot. And Jim Page said, chuckling, he said, you know, maybe at every scene we should say, I think there's a secondary device so that we have a second chance to, to fix our screw ups because we always park the ambulance right in front of the building and then we can't move it. 
And we always think that the triage area should be in the front of the building when in fact, people are gonna be spewing out the back or maybe we need two of them. And so you always have to take that, that big global view. I'll tell you now, I'm really big into drones. And I mm -hmm. think the drones are going to be the MCI answer in the future. Um, I have systems that are going to be launching drones from the roof of their vehicles. And it'll hover overhead and it'll light up the scene. It'll give, uh, you know, uh, thermal imaging. It'll allow them to do a four exposure look at the scene. But there's an awful lot that you can tell from up in the air that you can't really tell on the ground. And I don't know about you, but, you know, when I go to a picnic, I don't want ants at my picnic. If there's ants, I want to either move or get rid of it. And, and there's a lot of ants at an MCI. There's people coming in and they're freelancing and they're, no, no, no. You come to the scene, you come to a person staging area, and I'll give you a job. And something that I was taught by the people in L.A. Uh, after uh, L.A. City had a couple of train accidents, and that is the concept of uh, patient transport teams. Uh, I want a couple of firefighters who do nothing but move patients from X to the tarp, from Y to the tarp, and from the tarp on the backboards, whatever happens to be. I don't want to tie up a paramedic moving somebody a half a block. I want to commandeer a stretcher. I want to give two firefighters that stretcher, and they become a trolley, back and forth, back and forth. And that's your job. That's, that's what you are. You're a transport team because that always is a major problem. We get all these people triaged and nobody to move them. Or we try and you know move somebody on the wrong device, uh, whether it be a back raft or whatever it happens to be, and, and we put six firefighters to carry one patient. That's ridiculous. Mm. So you know, there's so many little things you can learn. I, I, I honestly, I critique every MCI, I look at it. I look at every injury on a football field to see if it's an organized injury. And uh, there's a lot of things that you can really learn. The other thing is that your hospitals and your dispatch center have to be notified of everything that's going on early. Lots of radio communications to the comm center. And, and I use the word empower. I want to empower, empower my comm center to be bugging me. Uh, comm center and incident command, do you need helicopters at your scene? Comm center and incident command, do you want me to notify the hospital? They should, I have a hospital or a communications checklist as well that prompts them on what to say to me because I forgot. I, I forgot about sending critical incident stress people to the scene. I forgot to ask for buses. I forgot to ask for helicopters. And, uh, and so there, there's a lot of things there. And, and the other thing is notify your hospitals early. You know, in, in Oklahoma City, they were only five minutes in the hospital and the hospital wasn't even notified until five people showed up in the back of a pickup truck. And it's like, holy shit, what's going on? I want all hospitals notified. Hospital one, you're five minutes from the scene. Hospital two, you're 20 minutes from the scene. And you know what, hospitals? What I just told you is the ETA. Every time I tell you you're getting a patient, if I said you're 20 minutes from the scene, the ETA is going to be 20 minutes. So I'm not going to give you a damn time. And, and that's the way it is. And, and when you call me, don't ask me for additional information because I'm going to be spitting information at you and that's all you need to know. And, and the other thing, if we can go back to it, is communication. I teach everybody, particularly the people that are giving from my transport system, the radio report to the hospital to speak like a robot. Hospital 7 from transport. Be advised 
priority one, and I'm speaking so they can write as I'm speaking. Priority one patient, tag number 2164, repeating 2164. Sucking chest wound, flail chest, back injury. Coming to you in medic 247, ETA 10. No other available information at this time. So don't ask me if they're on birth control pills. Don't ask me for vital signs. You don't want to listen to vital signs on a day-to-day basis. So why would I be giving them to you now? If I tell you they're their priority one patient, it's a priority one patient. Yeah. And, and if you... I had a caveat that we also have a priority one police officer with a fractured leg, well, if I've trained with the hospitals, they know that priority one sometimes means priority one to leave the scene. I don't leave an injured firefighter police officer at the scene. If he's got a broken leg, psychologically, I want to get him care. I shove him in the front of the ambulance. I put a red tag on him and I get rid of him. And they just have to understand if he's not near death, then there must be a reason that AJ put a red on him to get rid of him. Yeah. Make, the make same sense. with somebody who's psychologically out of control. I put a red tag and I put them in a police vehicle. That's what God invented duct tape for. I can duct tape them down and, and get them away from the scene. They, they can't control my scene by their emotions. No, I think, I think that makes sense. sense. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's quite interesting you said about doing the pauses um, on, on your communications. I think anybody who's been through the military will understand that that is something that absolutely drilled into our heads almost from day one, is how you communicate on a radio professionally. And uh, it does, it really does make, make quite quite a difference. But the, just, just to try and summarise, I mean, there was so much information and uh, personal experience and experiences from other instances where you've got the evidence from came through there. But the thing, the, the main things I got from you there was simple things like checklists are important. You know, we, we see that in, av- I, I often look at aviation as being a good standard in communications and crisis management, but check, you know, we see the pilot with a checklist as soon as, as soon as there's any tension. You know, they're a simple thing, they're inexpensive, but we know they work. So it never has to be rocket science. Understanding hum- human capacity, I think, is something you, you touched on a lot. How much can you actually do effectively and not overloading and having somebody by your side to say, and it was a classic, again, going back to, I suppose, my ex-army days, where we used to say to our, our, whoever was in charge as an officer, sir, don't you think we should do it that way? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Just somebody with you know, that one step back with a little bit more calm, not having to make the decisions, but can give guidance. And I think those are hugely important things. Just, just one question to finish off, AJ. If we, we've touched a lot on, uh, you know, some tips and uh, some guidance for instructors, but if you were somebody new to the emergency services uh, profession and you were trying to get yourself prepared to go to a multiple casualty scene or, or just thinking about it, is there maybe one or two points you would say, think about this before you go to try and help their response? Is there any guidance you would give them? What would be the maybe one or two key things you could say if you're going to go? Here's a little bit of advice. It's like playing dominoes. You, you just write a list of all the things that you know and learn or just go to any of the textbooks and things about staging or whatever. And, and just it's like a puzzle. Put that puzzle together. You know, what's really most important? Well, geez, telling the hospitals might be important. So I'm going to put that high on the list. And checklists are important. And wearing vests and color coding. All of those things are important. There's enough good writings out there. And, and understand command and crew resource management. There's a doctor in, 
California, David Van Stralen. Uh, he's a genius and uh, he works with me on crew resource management. And everybody should understand that crew resource management is uh, taking authority. When Sully Sullenberg realized that his plane was gonna crash in the Hudson River, his co-pilot was in command of that aircraft. And all Sully under crew resource management had to do was put his hand on the throttle over the hand of his co-pilot and say, my aircraft. And that guy took his hands away from the controls and Sully landed in the Hudson. And that took one second for him to say, my aircraft. And that just said, you're done. You know, my party, my MCI, you have to be authoritative without being obnoxious, but just say to somebody, this is what you're gonna do. I always explain to people, you are my helicopter ambulance. And they're like, what? Well, we always forget to load helicopters that are three blocks away in a parking lot. If I empower you that you're my helicopter ambulance, you just keep coming back to my transport area and saying, helicopter ambulance is here and we'll give you more patience. And your job is to just get the hell out of here, bring them down the street to the helicopter and come back for more patience. That's all you're gonna do. Do you got that? Yes. Find the things that are most screwed up and there's got to be a fix for it. And you know, my, my email address is ajheitman at gmail.com. Anybody who wants checklists or anything else, they can email me and I'll be glad to, to send them information. Fantastic. And, and that, that is a really kind offer. Thank, thank you very much for that. So AJ, look, we could talk forever. <laughs> we really could. And, uh, I, I and always, we will again. We will again. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's fascinating listening to you, you the, the evidence you can bring, the, the experience and, and really how, how you teach it as well. I mean, they're, they're so important to, to pass on almost to the next generation coming through. So, so thank you so much for, you, for your time this evening. Um, as AJ mentioned, um, if you would like more in, in information from this, um, we will put um, links on our LinkedIn page when, the, when this podcast goes live. And if you do have any questions, you can also go to our website at tsgassociates.co.uk. But thank you so much for, for listening tonight. And uh, we, will be, we will be back very soon with another unique subject and colleague. So AJ, thank you once again. Uh, and I'll hopefully catch up with you quite soon. Quite welcome. Honoured to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.